No one likes a bragger. What a week. My name is Matt Sinovic. I'm the Executive Director of Progress Iowa. And I'm Mikey Bechtold, Communications Director of Progress Iowa. Welcome to What a Week with hot takes about the week's news and shout outs for people doing good in the world. This week, we talk with Edward, Edward Isaac Dover, author of Battle for the Soul, which tracked the 2020 Democratic presidential primary campaign. But we start with what made headlines this past week. Ivy, it's been a week since, legislature, um, has, since the legislature has adjourned for the year. Thankfully, we don't have to talk about them anymore, but are you, fully, are you recovered at all from, from that uh, experience yet? Or I mean, this is, That was your first session with, with Progress Iowa, so... Yeah. Um, what was, I mean, uh, I know we talked about this, uh, last week, but like, what was your, are you, are you, are you like, have you, yeah, have you recovered yet? Uh, not exactly. I mean, I'll still like be, uh, just sleeping, you know, and then I wake up and think, oh my gosh, do you think something happened? You know, right. like in the legislature, cause it's always so scary that last week, <laughs> but yeah, you have I some, just like, don't want to miss anything. You have some post trauma still to deal with. Um, yeah. Okay. So it was, yeah, it was wild, but well, uh, very glad it's over. Doesn't feel over, but yeah, it's, you know. I mean, it's never really over because that, um, well, because they'll come back next year. And also, I, it looks like they're going to come back for a special session to talk about uh, uh, redistricting. So right. we'll get to all that in probably in a future episode, but we're going to go ahead and start this week with Governor Kim Reynolds bragging about. Uh, Iowa doing so well because of how she handled the pandemic. Um, she was on Fox. Ivy, what did she what she have to say? Just, you know, a lot of, you know, BS, basically. Just saying that she thought that Iowa was reaping the benefits of, you know, the fact that we kept the meat processing plants open and that we have so much opportunity. But obviously, that's not really taking into account all of the horrible things that happened with the meatpacking plants, you know, many people died from there. And then obviously 6,000 Iowans are now dead. And aren't we losing jobs? So I don't know what she's talking about, about all this opportunity, really. Right. I mean, we are we are losing jobs. We've lost jobs, I think, in two, of the, two out of the last three months. And we're a rate uh, of, we're, it's, our job growth rate is four times slower than the rest of the country. Um, since last fall and and so she's wrong on that and obviously she's wrong about the uh, pandemic I mean we had uh, I think it was the uh, UC Berkeley did a study um, talking about infection rates and um, and just based on the, the the rate of of COVID in, in our state in each state and we ranked 49th so I mean hard to get much worse than that and so we have no, you know, shrinking opportunities in the state of Iowa, and we were in, infected with COVID more than almost any other state, um, and on a by population basis. So it's really just, uh, I mean, uh, it, it's she's just selling selling magic beans on Fox News or trying to, um, and of course she's not going to get criticized there, um, but uh, just continues to, to spew falsehoods um, to try and prop herself up politically. Um, and we, uh, we shouldn't forget that 
There was a report out by MoneyWise a few weeks ago that showed that Iowa is one of the states where people are leaving. People are fleeing the state, mm-hmm. um, especially young people. So um, uh, whether it's because of lack of opportunity or some of the incredibly, horribly uh, bigoted laws that are being written on the books, um, it's just not a place that is very welcoming right now. So um, on all fronts, the governor is just... Uh, is failing and and bragging when she has no right to do so. Exactly. I'd like to see her go on a different news channel and yeah. see what the response would be. Any, there. literally oh. any other news channel. Like, I don't think yeah. she's done a sit down with the register for a while. Um, mm-hmm. It'd be very interesting to see if she, um, how she, how, how she would um, uh, handle that or how they, what questions they would ask. So. Exactly. Yeah. Next up on Crazy Iowa News. So finally, the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board voted on Wednesday to have a formal investigation into heritage action because they were lobbying Governor Reynolds' office for the voter suppression legislation. Well, you know, apparently, pretty sure they did. But anyway, I think it's an important step just to make sure that outside groups don't come into Iowa and think they can do whatever you know they want. What were your thoughts on this one? I think it's really important, and um, there's a, um, a bleeding heartland story about this. That uh, one of the things I remembered from it is that that they have subpoena power. So this is a this is more than um, more than just uh, uh, a group. Like we we submitted open records requests, which the legislature has no legal obligation to respond to, um, mm-hmm. and and we've just, as of today, we've just recently gotten our first, like, rejections from that. Like, and I expect we will get more from that. Um, but it's important to at least ask. But this group, they can get the information. They can actually get the the relevant information and find and try to find out what happened. So, um, so I think that's important because that's a step beyond just a good a, a citizen or an organization asking for it so um it's really it'll be really interesting to see what they find out um uh i i i i will be very curious to see how it plays out next up we talk about the state police investigating the fact that at animosa state penitentiary there were materials to make explosives this is obviously concerning because not only uh, the safety of inmates and staff but because of what happened there, you know, a few months ago with the two murders. So it's just really disheartening to see that security hasn't really been up to enough. Yeah, I, as if the murder of two, like, two staff was not enough. I mean, I don't know what the heck is, what what it's going to take to seriously address this. And I mean, we just like, could not be more, like, I mean, just dumbfounded by this response uh, or la- or just like they, they, the state is just failing completely here. And um, I, I don't know what the hell they're doing um, and they need to figure it out quickly because something even worse is going to happen. It appears if they, if they don't. So we join uh, the folks that asked me council 61 and others who are calling for, um, calling for action about this. So I just, um, I, I, we've got, they've got to, they've got to fix this situation. Yeah, it's really horrible. So hopefully things get better because obviously we know that there's been overcrowding at Anamosa before 
and understaffing. So hopefully with some more budget, they can get things going. Yeah. Um, the last Iowa specific news is, um, the fact that one of the bright spots actually of the legislative session was that a lot of the anti LGBTQ um, proposals did not make it through and become law, including a ban on transgender athletes um, in, in schools. And uh, But the news is now coming out that it is likely going to be at least a conversation for the 2022 legislative session, so next year. Um, I, they're clearly laying the groundwork for this now, uh, for, for writing this discriminatory policy into our law. Um, it would be a real shame if that ends up happening, but thankfully they're telegraphing it enough that all of us have a chance to speak out now and try and get legislators on, uh, to, to, to not allow that to happen, to base, to, to be opposed to it. So, uh, what was your opinion about this? And like, what, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen over the next year, Ivy? I mean, obviously, it's horrible. It's better that it's pushed off till next year, though, just because whenever uh, Reynolds announced on Fox News that she was going to try to get this pushed through in 2021, it was nerve-wracking because we were almost done with the session. So definitely glad that people will have a chance to speak up more. But the fact that this is even going to still be a conversation with Pat Grassley saying that they just didn't have enough time to do it before they wrapped up this year it was just really disheartening and so i hope that with great groups like when iowa and uh, iowa safe schools they can kind of lead the way on where we can go on this yep and we we will be definitely uh reminding folks about how they can get involved with those two great organizations and others to to stand up for for the rights of every single iowan Next up on national news, so this week on Tuesday, it was the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. Obviously, this uh, murder made a really huge impact on the U.S., and even though that uh, there was accountability in this case, that is often rare, and it was really just a sign that more change needs to come. Obviously, this change hasn't come in Iowa, at least this session. We've kind of gone backwards, so... Hopefully they can pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act uh, at the federal level. Yeah, I um, agree. I hope that they do. Um, And I hope that our legislators and our governor pay attention. Um, And I hope that to to what's going on in the state and the country. I mean, this is it's it's um, it's something that happens all too often every single day, whether and and it's not always a. as extreme and awful and tragic as what happened to George Floyd. It's a, you know, it's a traffic stop that didn't have to, that shouldn't have happened. Um, or it's a, uh, um, an escalation of, of violence that, uh, that, that was unneeded, unwarranted. And so there's anything and everything, um, under the sun that, that, that is just more problematic, more difficult, more challenging, for for black islands for black americans and so um i i think i i think learning about it is one thing but doing something about it is another and and the governor and legislature seemed intent this year on on pushing us backwards so i hope that that i hope that that changes but my fear is that it's going to take such a either a sea change in the who we have in office or 
such a outpouring of of anger and frustration mm. um, as far as protests go. I mean, it's going to be it, it would need to be something along the lines of what we saw last year. So um, it's just uh, I I'm I'm still hopeful about all of this, but like, but it is it's a little bit hard to be sometimes, especially when you see what the legislature tried to do. So uh, one year later, I. In many ways, I feel like we've gone forward, but in some way, in in many ways, I feel like we're still stuck where we where we were. So. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have hot takes, where we give our opinions on the hot topics of the week. First up, uh, huge news: the Friends reunion is now available. Are you going to watch it? Do you like Friends? Uh, yeah, I do. I don't know if I'll watch it. I the show is funny. I'm like I'm kind of like a. Friends, I'm lukewarm on it. I guess like, I, it's a funny show. I was always way more a Seinfeld fan, so it's like, so mm-hmm. I, and because those two were on at the same time and similar-ish, at least at the beginning, like, I, I will always, always rate Seinfeld way above Friends. Uh, frankly, because it never got, it never, it was always what it was it never like it never got into like they never paired people off and like created all the rela- any relationship drama it was just a pure mm-hmm. comedy so um oh i live for all the drama yeah for sure and everybody has their own <laughs> different you know uh, uh styles of shows that they like and friends is very good um but but i will always put seinfeld ahead of it and i think because yeah. they were they were on at the same time they always get I, I feel like they should they will probably always be compared to each other but uh, uh, probably on the fence, leaning no to watching it. Wow! But, yeah. oh, I'm but so I might, I might. I don't know. Like, yeah. If it was new episodes, I would be much more likely to watch it. Oh, okay. I'd say. Yeah. yeah. But like, it's them sitting around and like talking, right? Like, it's not. Is that right? Yeah, I, mean, I think. Yeah, it's just them talking, and I think a lot of people thought it was going to be new episodes, and then it, like they found out it wasn't, so yeah. that was kind of like sad. I mean, I look, get it. Yeah. And and I get what they're doing. Like people will watch. A lot of people will watch. I'm, I shoot. Mm-hmm. I might even. I might watch it. I don't know. But like, but yes. it would. Like there's so much else that that is <sighs> on like available sound TV. Yeah. Whatever the heck that means anymore. Um, that like I it, it, it's pretty far down the list. So yeah. Well, I haven't seen Seinfeld, so I'll have to. Oh my gosh. Go for that. Yeah. You got to do it. You got to do it. I know. But yeah, definitely going to watch the Friends reunion. And I've actually been watching, some people say that Friends is actually based off of Living Single, which like has Queen Latifah on it and some other people. Oh, so I've been trying to that. start that. And that's okay. pretty good, actually. So, okay. Check yeah, that out, so. too. Good piece. tip. Good yeah. tip. Um, another hot take is farmer Dave Mulebauer uh, launched his Senate run. He's the first Democratic candidate uh, who's into that. I mean, we assume it'll be a primary, but... Uh, um, we assume there'll be several more get in the race to challenge Senator Grassley, or if he Senator Grassley doesn't run, um, then it'd be an open seat. So, did you see this announcement? What do you think of of our of the first candidate um, in the race? Yeah, I saw it on uh, IO starting line. I thought it was just interesting. Like, I get so excited when anyone yeah. starts announcing things, so that was fun. And obviously, anyone against Grassley, I'm like so excited i thought it was cool that he's you know a farmer and trying to get rural democrats really active i thought that was a different approach for democrats so i thought it was exciting 
What do you think? Um, yeah, I thought it was good. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, uh, I, I think like he'll be a, like, a, it, it's always nice to have people who are not, or from a variety of places from around the state. So I'll be interested mm-hmm. to see what he has to say and interested to see who else gets in, of course, and, and how they kind of play uh, off of each other. So, yeah. 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 We are thrilled to have with us Edward Isaac Duvere. Um, who, Isaac is a staff writer at The Atlantic, author of Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democratic Camp, the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. And on a personal note, he also has described Progress Iowa um, as having developed a knack for being an early stop for mostly unknown Democrats who then splashed into the presidential field. He's covered some of our events before. So, Isaac, welcome to uh, What a Week, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is true. And Progress Iowa, I, I'll, I'll tell you even a, a good story of an event that I didn't cover because uh, <laughs> when you guys had in uh, December of 2018, it was Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang right. and Jen Merkley, I think it was, right? Um, and I said to my editor, I think I should go because this <laughs> Buttigieg guy seems like I had been covering Buttigieg a while. Right. I can see that there was something to it. And I said, I think that something's going to happen. And he was like, what's his name? Pete what? <laughs> and I said, Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang is going to be there too. And uh, and he was like, who who are any that? People? Right, and yeah. not just him. We ended. I wrote up that they were going to be there. Right. There was an article about it. Yeah, and we couldn't find a file photo of Buddha Judge at that point. Wow, <laughs> that's interesting. That's yeah. um, uh, couldn't even find a file photo. Okay, well, I mean, and obviously the rest is history, which you wrote about very very well in this. Uh, New book, uh, Battle for the Soul. Um, I, I have it. Um, it is it is great. Um, I must say too, like I've I've seen some of the, uh, the 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 quotes about it. Like you're getting praise from everyone, from uh, John King and CNN, MSNBC, to all the way to Sean Hannity. So uh, um, uh, it's a it's just I think it's a it's it's a really interesting in depth look behind the scenes so i just want to kind of start with like a big question here like what goes into like i mean writing a a book like this i mean this is a pretty beastly enterprise it seems like (laughs) it it, it was uh there was not a lot of sleep in my life in the last Mm -hmm. year uh and what goes into it is i started working on this uh in 2017 sold the book contract in 2018 and then was uh putting together notes for it over the course of covering the election day to day, spending a whole lot of time in Iowa, but also a whole lot of time in New Hampshire and uh, all the other places. I did a count that we included in the book uh, that I was in 29 states over the course of the election covering it. Yeah. So there, there was a lot to do uh, and there was a lot going on, but uh, there, it always seemed to me that a there was only so much of what was happening that I'd be able to get into any of my articles that I was writing day to day, and uh, b I because I knew I was writing this book, I talked to all of the campaigns uh, about giving me some access to things that were happening as they were happening under an agreement that I wouldn't use it until the spring of 2021 when the book came out. That allowed me to give a real fresh sense of what was happening 
in the moment that you couldn't have gotten if you tried to recreate it after the fact. So uh, one of the best moments of this, and and of course it's a very Iowa centric, is uh, I was sitting with Pete Buttigieg in his suite, on the top floor of the Des Moines Marriott, about an an hour before uh, the caucuses started. I went right from uh, there to uh, the caucus site in West Des Moines, uh, where I spent that that night. Uh, right before everything started to fall apart. Uh, and, uh, but it was, it, it was immediately from that interview. And I spent an hour with Buttigieg uh, almost talking about what he was going through in that moment. And of course, he didn't know whether he was about to completely collapse and that'd be the end if he had done right. poorly in Iowa, or if he was maybe actually going to do well. Uh, obviously, we, none of us knew that the caucuses were going to become that mess. But talking to him, capturing that politically formed, but also getting to speak about uh, issues that were coming up in the campaign, what it was like to suddenly be famous and getting chased around everywhere, known everywhere, what it was like there'd been a a, uh, a protest of him in Chicago where he was doing a fundraiser uh, about 10 days earlier that, of course, he's the first gay candidate of significance in a presidential election. And he, uh, the the protests have been queers against Pete, and he was really even Pete Buttigieg, wow. who you, you know has uh, rightfully a sense about him as being an analytic guy and not that emotional, uh, was talking about how it hurt him and how upset he was. I got that out of a lot of these candidates over the course of the election, getting these very raw moments. Uh, sometimes it was getting it from them directly. Uh, sometimes it was reporting about what was going on. Uh, and you see that coming up in his emotional things that happen. Uh, sometimes there's some cursing that I was able to report about. It's a lot of attention that's come to uh, Obama cursing about Trump and uh, Joe and Jill Biden both cursing about Kamala Harris after uh, she attacked him in that first primary debate in May of 2019. But there was also just when you see what these people are like behind the scenes, who they are, these people that, you know, I have, I, I collected over the course of the campaign buttons from each of the campaigns. And you can sort of, we can all sort of forget that there, there's more to these people than uh, their name on a button or on a sign or the speech that they've given a thousand times, that there is a whole process going on for them. And that when they interact with each other, uh, there's a lot, a lot of it is about their humanity banging up against each other. And that's certainly a dynamic also, I should say, that with the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, yeah. part of that is about ideology, what was happening with them. And part of that is about their personalities and how they related to each other as people. Well, and I think that's something that as Iowans, we sometimes, at least those who are uh, very engaged in the caucus process and um, yeah. not even the caucus process, but going to a lot of campaign events or um, meeting these candidates one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, like it is, it is, it is sometimes easy for us to take that for granted because we get to see, and we don't certainly do not get to do, you know, have a hour long discussion with the, the, the guy who is about to become the caucus winner. Um, but like, but we get to see them at a coffee shop at a local grocery store or whatever. And, and I think that some of the moments that you've captured here really just are, are incredible are, are very powerful for uh giving a window into into what goes on behind the scenes so um i, I uh um i think that was that's really really interesting i do want to talk about the caucus a little bit um and and kind of play a 
I, I, I love the, I mean, the beginning of the book was about, uh, um, was talking about whether or not, or some of the, the discussions were about whether or not then Vice President Biden could could have beaten Trump in 2016, and and uh, or there was some mention of that, and uh, by by the folks that you were talking to, um, or, or or reporting about, um, and uh, and then there was some talk of of what could have happened if there was a clear definitive winner on caucus night, and what would Mayor Buttigieg's you know. Uh, uh, boost have been, you know, um, and I, I, it's hard to rewrite that, but I'm curious what your take is on what that, what that could have looked like and how that could have shaped the race. Well, I, there are sort of two parts of it. I think first of all, that the caucus was the mess that it was. And you can see in the book, I, I get into uh, how long that had been building. It goes back to the, uh, some of the things that the DNC was trying to demand uh, of the caucuses and uh, arguments that were uh, that bubbled up uh, already by August of, of 2019 uh, between Tom Perez and, and Troy Price. Yeah, uh, it was a long-standing uh, <laughs> um, issue there, right. yeah, for sure. Uh, but, so, and, and so what happened there, I think that was damaging to Democrats in a lot of ways. It was like, Democrats can't even run an election. Um, it added to the chaos. It was momentarily, it seemed to be good news for Mike Bloomberg that he was like the guy apart from the chaos. But for Pete Buttigieg specifically, if you imagine what would have happened if the caucuses had just run normally and <laughs> Pete Buttigieg had won, and what a moment that would have been for uh, anybody to win the Iowa caucuses, first of all, that's a big deal, but for a, a candidate who was so unlikely as Buttigieg to win the caucuses, the historic nature of the first gay candidate the, uh, for a guy who was at that point, I think 38 years old, um, mm -hmm. or just uh, right, um, maybe just turned 38, I think. Right. Uh, all of those things coming together, it would have been huge for him. It would have been huge in terms of the attention that he would have gotten. He probably would have raised millions of dollars off of it. And that would have put some momentum going that could have changed things. Uh, even with how it went, he came really close in New Hampshire to beating Bernie Sanders, put a little bit more gas in the tank for him from the from a, a proper caucus win, a properly recognized caucus win, who knows what would have happened. Uh, maybe things would have turned out exactly the same way, but it's hard to look at that and say like it, it wouldn't have made a difference. And Buttigieg certainly feels that way. And um, I not only talked to him on caucus night, but I have had a, had a follow-up conversation with him uh, over last summer to talk about this and he he was frank about it that he feels like this is that that there is a at least a a what if or a what might have happened and really much more than that for him yeah um well as as <clears throat> as you've mentioned about not just the iowa caucus but uh and now we're dealing with this after or iowa progressives are are dealing with this after the in the aftermath of a 2020 um, election cycle um, and going through this um, through a, a process where we're looking to see what's what's next for us and, and there are a lot of conservative victories in the Iowa legislature this yep. year it's a it is a process that 
that you that you write about too that that happened after 2016 and kind of this oh shit moment when um president trump became or donald trump became president trump and what the heck are we going to do series of meetings the rise of indivisible all this i mean are there i mean whether it's in iowa or elsewhere are there pieces of this that you think um of, of that rebuild moment that would be um, most interesting for folks who are looking to, you know, uh, to to make a, a change in their in their state in their city uh, as they as we look forward. I like Iowa is of course the home of the most counties that flipped from Obama to Trump, sure. right? Uh, and uh, and so things that are in the book that talk about how uh, how things change for the whole country in trying to get some of the uh, Obama to Trump uh, folks to be Biden folks uh, it, it seem applicable, right? Uh, the book starts with uh, Obama and Biden each watching uh, Trump win on election night. And then one of the things that attracts is that uh, the Obama White House aides decide, you know, we got to figure out what's going on. We got to do something about this. And so what do they do? They uh, decide to do some focus groups where in Iowa? Why? Because uh, Obama, Iowa has this like mythical place in Obama's mind because he won there and because he feels like that was the start of the magic play and he feels connected with the voters. So they want to find out what went on. And uh, they see uh, from the what they're getting back is that what people were looking for was for things to get done, that they liked Obama. They thought he was sort of an outside figure who was going to come in and uh, and shake things up. And then they say he didn't do it. So now we need Trump to go in there and shake things up. Uh, so that th there's a lesson in that of that voters want things to happen. I think it's a lesson, by the way, that Joe Biden seems aware of. Uh, but uh, as it relates specifically to uh, what you guys are facing in Iowa and what progressives are facing, you see that it, activism that happened in places around the country, including Iowa, but maybe more concentrated in other places, uh, made a big difference and made a big difference, certainly in Georgia, uh, but uh, in Arizona too, in these places that were on the cusp. For Democrats, Iowa is a place that slipped away, right? And so you have to not, it's not like Georgia and Arizona is my point, that you have to try to make it happen, right? You need to kind of get it back. Uh, and. Uh, that's tricky. Uh, and I wonder what things will look like next year in the midterms when Trump is not on the ticket, uh, because he's obviously proven very popular in Iowa, uh, over the, the last couple of years. Uh, yeah. but it is that district, you know, it, 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 it was Abby Finkenauer, uh, an anomaly or was she, uh, someone, uh, she herself or what an example of someone who could win in that district uh, with the right kind of campaign and the right kind of circumstances, right? Uh, that That is, uh, I think, a, a question that faces Iowa progressives, uh, but also is about uh, th what the country overall has to think about because Finkenauer's district is one of those districts that... Uh, uh, the Democrats never really thought was going to be as big of a problem for them in 2020 as it proved to be. Right. And well, we, and we may actually get to see, uh, at least 
maybe not in that district, but some sort of a test of that with with uh, uh, former uh, uh, Representative Finkenauer. She's considering at least a run for for Senate. Um, yeah. Um, so, but um, uh, no, I, I the the focus group piece was really fascinating to me. There was, if, if I'm remembering right, there was a woman who they talked to that uh, did vote for. Uh, President Obama and then voted for for Donald Trump because she wanted change. She voted for President Obama for to you know because he was the change candidate and then it didn't happen and so she I feel like the quote was something like she wanted to drain the swamp and so that connected with her. So um, it was a um, it was a I mean, another piece you wrote that it was a change election and and Hillary Clinton was not going to be the change candidate or someone someone had said said that so yeah uh, uh, that was a, a Clinton campaign official that i yeah. uh, had talked to uh, the thursday before the 2016 election in a diner in brooklyn and this person says to me well we realized it was going to be a change election but hillary could never be the change candidate so we decided to change the question and Matt, like, that's the kind of thing that people say in meetings, uh, certainly in campaign staff <laughs> meetings. They think like, oh, that sounds really smart. But, like, <laughs> but how do you do that? I'm not yeah. sure it's that smart. It obviously didn't work, right? And right. so, you know, to go to your question of what progressives and I would need to do, what anybody, you need to find ways to talk to voters. That's what right. Trump, Trump, uh, obviously, Matt, I, uh, I think, I feel confident saying you were not a Trump voter, but you can appreciate the fact that people felt like Trump was speaking to them. And people also felt, felt like Biden was speaking to them. And that has a lot to do with both of their wins, right? Uh, and so it's about how you make this feel, uh, how you make politics feel present in people's lives, immediate in their lives, making a difference to them, that you're thinking about them, that you're not forgetting about them. And a big problem that the Democratic Party had, which Trace in the book, uh, going into 2016, is that a lot of people were feeling like government really wasn't doing much for them. And by the way, that's not just about Donald Trump. That also helps ex explain the the Bernie Sanders candidacy. Uh, and, you know, th that's that's what came... 2016, were, were, there were two shocker campaigns that shouldn't have done nearly as well uh, as they did by any of the traditional rules, and that's Trump and Sanders. And both of them are talking to something very, very similar, obviously taking a very different approach to it. Right. And I will say, I mean, I do want to uh, absolutely acknowledge, and, and you do in the book as well, the, the role of, of race, of gender um, in, a lot of, in, in a lot of this. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But I do think that to your point of the question or the, the discussion you had in that diner with that campaign official, yeah. I mean, I think it is, it's folly to say, or it's, it's problematic in my opinion, just from a messaging perspective, because that's a lot of what we do is communications work. I mean, it's it's tough to you start off on the wrong foot. I think when you're talking with a uh, anyone and you're trying to tell them what question they should be asking, instead of listening and saying what question are you asking, and then trying to you know create a campaign around that. So I. Uh, um, I'm not sure if I'm communicating that effectively, but right now, but like, but I think you can't you can't tell people what they're thinking and then, and right. then give them the message. You have to find it. You have to right. like ask what the engage in an honest dialogue and and start from and then and then start from from that point. Um, so I I do have a I know we got to go in just a few minutes, but I want to ask um, uh, what I, I'm curious. Like this is such a great history or initial 
draft of history of of this uh, uh, election. What? But is are there are there pieces that that are on the cutting room floor? Like when you <laughs> write the extended, you know, when when this is just the director's this, cut. <laughs> yeah, the director's cut. Is there are there pieces that didn't quite make it in or anything like that that you wanna that you can share with us? There are some pieces that didn't quite make it in. It's not quite like the Snyder cut of Battle for the Soul. <laughs> uh, but uh, okay. I, I, I think one way to, to think about this is uh, the book, we were running on an accelerated time frame. We wanted to get this book out by the spring, uh, and that obviously didn't end until November. Uh, that's very fast-paced for a book. Uh, and so in uh, through December into January, I was... Uh, turning in chunks of the book, uh, a couple of chapters at a time, uh, every couple of days to my editor. Uh, obviously, I wasn't writing them all in that time, but I was getting them ready and saying, okay, here, I, these take take chapters one through five. Here you go. Uh, okay, now I'm ready to send you six through ten. The last chunk was due on January 4th. Uh, and I sent wow. an email to my editor that morning, and I said to him, uh Okay, listen, here's the last chunk minus the final chapter. I got to hold it back, I think, because we've got these Senate races in Georgia tomorrow, and uh, we'll see what happens with them. doesn't look great for the Democrats, but you never know. Uh, and, then, <laughs> uh, and this is a part of why I, I don't make predictions in public. Uh, but uh, And then I said, uh, and then on Wednesday is the certification of the vote, and it's probably going to be like a lot of theater, uh, but we're going to have to account for that too. Uh, and I had been in conversation with uh, the Biden folks about uh, speaking to him, uh, and the, the thought would, was maybe uh, the first week in January. Right. So my editor says to me, that's fine. Uh, I've got enough to work with here. Like, get it to me by Friday. That makes total sense. Uh, of course, we all know what happened that week. Yep. Uh, did not go the way that I expected. Um, I was in Wilmington in Delaware uh, with Biden at, when the riot uh, happened. We were waiting for him to give a speech that was going to be about investing in small business. It was, you know, very much uh, sort of boring counter programming on sure. purpose. Boring, um, and uh, and then everything happened. And Biden spoke that day about it. But then uh, there was a curfew that was put on in D.C. And I had been planning to drive home that night. It's about a two-hour drive from Wilmington back to my house in D.C. And uh, I didn't know whether I'd be able to get home. So I stayed overnight in Wilmington. Biden gave a speech the next day, a little more about the riot and what to do, what he thought needed to be done. Uh, and uh, as I'm walking into the speech, I get an email from my editor that says, so listen, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to push the book back uh, for a couple of weeks uh, because we're going to have to include all of this, obviously. And so yeah. look, look, uh, it includes two chapters uh, that end with an interview with Biden. It was right. his first interview as president uh, that happened on February 2nd. So it comes, the book really almost comes right up to this moment that we're in right now. Uh, and uh, it was crazy crunch time. But the, the last 50 pages of the book, the last two chapters, mm -hmm. it's not that they weren't on the proposal for the book. It's not that they weren't on the outline. They were not conceived of until after the book was supposed to be finished. So are there things that have to get cut along the way to yeah. make room for that? Yes, there were. We, the book, the book uh, is 500 pages. 
it's not a short book, but I think you will see that, and I hope all your listeners will see that it's a book that's got a lot of like crazy stories and details and mm-hmm. things that what people were eating and what the, what uh, they were saying behind the scenes. Uh, the, you can really get a sense of the the feelings at the the rallies, but also the feelings behind closed doors and these moments and conversations that you've never heard of before. And then I will tell you. Uh, it was my job to cover this race day to day. A lot of the reporting that's in the book really surprised me finding out about it. And I was, I, my wife got tired of hearing me saying all the time, <laughs> this is what I found out today. Um, but, uh, but we didn't, so it's a, it's a big book, but there's a lot to it. Uh, we did not want to make it, you know, a thousand pages. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it feels like it could have been because there's just a lot of, there's a lot of great detail, um, a lot of great information. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to remember who, what review it was, but called it, described it as candy. Um, and I think it's more, okay, okay. And, and it was, I mean, it is, it is, it certainly is that it's more substantial in my opinion, it's, it's more substantial than that, but it is that too. So, um, it's really just fun to, it's a fun book to read as well, but, um, uh, uh, but it's very, it's, it's very interesting to see. I have to say like, it's still a little bit, it's still uh, kind of a, a gut, a gut punch reading the, at least the initial parts about the 2016 election night and all that. So, um, but, but I, I don't know that that will ever, that will ever change for me or, or probably, uh, um, some many others, but, uh, but, well, I mean, it, but it is a fun uh, read. The, the, uh, so. the, that election <laughs> night, I think was hard for a lot of people and it's sort of, uh, shocking for a lot of people. And that's why I want to tell it through the eyes of Obama and Biden and these stories that, like I said, had not been out before of how they processed it themselves. And you can see that beginning to happen. And, uh, but, uh, I'm glad to hear, uh, not, I'm sorry you felt bad, but I'm sort of glad that, (laughs) that, that it brought you back to that moment, right? Because that is a a really important moment in, in American history, I think overall, and certainly in, in political history in this moment. Um, so one parting question before we go, um, uh, it, it, there's a, there are, it does start with the fact that the question of whether Joe Biden, or I guess two questions of whether Joe Biden could have beaten Donald Trump in 2016. So my question, first question to you is if it was Joe Biden in 2016, would he have won? And the second question is who else? Um, would have been interesting on your because you cover uh, a ver- like just a variety. I mean, you're all over the place covering uh, people who are. I mean, you've covered like I said some of our events, uh, yep. people who are up and coming. Like, who would have been interesting to you? Uh, I'm not going to ask you about 2024, 2028, but who would have been? <laughs> so, would Biden have won? And if who else could have gotten in the race that would have been interesting? Because clearly, it was open enough in uh, of a primary field, even with Biden in it, to create space for, shit, 30 candidates plus Mayor Pete. There weren't enough people running for you, Matt? Right. Uh. But but Mayor Pete, but for for a guy like, for a candidate like Mayor Pete to ascend to winning the Iowa caucus. So who else, would Biden have won and who else could have gotten in that would have piqued your interest? I I think that there were two significant people, sort of two and a half significant people who didn't run, uh, who might have been interesting in the race. Uh, again, pretty much everybody who could have run did. The reason why I say <laughs> half is because 
Um, I think if Deval Patrick had gotten in at the beginning oh, of the sure. race, um, then he he would have been a very interesting candidate. His wife developed cancer, and he yeah. decided to hold off. And then obviously he did get in, but very late, and his campaign didn't go anywhere. Um, there was a sense that he could have been a really big factor in the race. He won the first Massachusetts governor's race by going literally like house to house um, and sitting with people and doing it. And that was kind of the plan of what he would do in Iowa. And of course that would have probably worked out well for him in the caucuses if, uh, if he'd done it well. So that's the half. The two others are very different people, uh, but uh, one of them is uh, Terry McAuliffe, who the former Virginia governor, okay. now running to try to go back right. as governor. Uh, he he was very much in the Biden space of what uh, what he wanted, uh, the kind of politics that he wanted. But this, the the Biden space where Biden was at the beginning of the race, not where Biden is now. He he has changed a lot and uh, over the presidency and uh, over the course of running for president to to make this presidency presidency now. I'm going to come back to Biden and talk more about that in a moment. To your first question, you asked sure. me. Um, and the, and, and the last one is Mitch Landrew, the former mayor of New Orleans, who is a really interesting person, um, and, 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 ha and is different. I've covered obviously a lot of politicians. He is different from many politicians. He, he speaks, uh, I wrote something about him, uh, a couple of years ago and wrote that he speaks in stories and everything, but it's it, literary references and references to uh, being in conversations on the floor of the uh, Louisiana state uh, house of representatives. Uh, all of these things that, that make him stand out. He's also a white guy who is the mayor of New Orleans, obviously son of another mayor of New Orleans, but very popular with a lot of black voters has a way of speaking about race that many people were introduced to when he gave this, that speech about taking down those three Confederate monuments in New Orleans. Yeah. But it goes much deeper than that, and you can see it in some of the work that he's done since. He was a really interesting person, and among the people who was curious about him, interested about him, is uh, was Obama, because Obama was looking for these like outside figures. He was interested in Deval Patrick, he was interested in Mitch Landrieu, he was interested in Beto O'Rourke, um, and uh, there was a lot of Obama world interest in Beto O'Rourke because it was like, is this guy cut from the same uh, cloth as Obama? Your question about Biden, though, uh, is uh, is a big one and is one of the things that I try to grapple with through the book, right? right. It starts with, uh, look, there, there's an early chapter looking at Biden at, in 2015 and 16, and then uh, as he got through uh, the, the early stages of the Trump presidency, uh, and you see that he is a uh, not a very good candidate, not a very good political figure. And by what I mean very good there is like not connecting with people, not uh, doing all the things that successful candidates usually need to do. Uh, and the stumbles continue through a lot of 2019. And even through, of course, 2020, he came in fourth in the caucuses. Mm -hmm. He came in fifth a week later in New Hampshire, right? This was not a, a campaign that was going that well in a lot of ways. There were certain things, as I trace in the book, that were going very well, but uh, they're not the most important things. 
And Biden was just not doing doing his job as a candidate that well. Uh, he ended up meeting a moment that wasn't there at the beginning of this race, right? When he got in, he conceived of his presidency almost as sort of a reset or of like, uh, if, if he saw Donald Trump as being a wound on America, he was going to be the antibiotics for a while and just let the wound close uh, and and get America back to what it's supposed to be, get politics to what it's supposed to be, again, get the Democratic Party a little bit more recalibrated uh, to, to what he thought it should be. Instead, he, uh, he changed a lot over the course of the campaign. And whether that's about thinking about uh, the pandemic and the economic opportunities uh, that are now ahead to rethink how uh, some of our system works, uh, or it's about uh, something that I trace in the book of what happened after George Floyd was killed. And he uh, he's obviously been in politics a long time, uh, was the vice president to the first black president, spent a lot of time uh, thinking about black-white uh, black, issues and uh, racial relations in America. Uh, he there, There's this moment in the book where he goes to meet with George Floyd's family privately before the funeral. <clears throat> and he's talking then to Al Sharpton, who's there. I'm sorry. <clears throat> uh, and Sharpton uh, says to him, you know, this is, it's more than just a neon Floyd's neck. We've all, all black people feel that there's uh, almost a neon all of our necks. And Biden says, I never really thought of it that way before. And at the same time, he connects with Floyd's daughter, Gianna, a little girl, um, right. and the, the sense of loss that's always there for Biden through uh, the car crash that killed his first wife and his baby daughter, uh, and of course, the oh, cancer yeah. that took Bo, and just always thinking about that. And he connects with her. She's lost her father. He's lost children. There's such an uh, emotional connection that way. And a couple of days afterwards, remember that some of the protests had gotten a little violent. And Sharpton says, uh, Sharpton and Biden are trading calls back and forth. And along that time, uh, Sharpton says publicly that he he condemns the violence. He says, don't, we don't need any violence in the riots. And it's important, not because you would have expected Sharpton to encourage the violence necessarily, but that he said anything about it was a big deal. Right. Okay. So then when Biden and Sharpton finally connect, Biden says to him, thank you for saying that, for condemning the violence, because the violence isn't helpful to our cause. And that phrasing really catches Sharpton, because do Biden doesn't say it's not helpful to the cause or your cause. He says it's not helpful to our cause and puts himself inside that in a way that I think you're seeing uh, makes a difference uh, on that front, What, uh, how Biden uh, carried forward in the election and now as president. What that doesn't mean is that Biden was ever, ever going to support things uh, that were coming from the left of the party about defund the police or anything like that. And he was really concerned a couple of uh, weeks after uh, George Floyd, uh, when what happened in Kenosha did, uh, because he was worried that this would cause a kind of backlash that the Democrats were kind of falling into a trap that Trump was laying for them with the reaction to it. So I'm not saying to you that Biden suddenly became like a defund the police guy, but yeah. what he did is figure out a new way of thinking about all of these things. So I, that is, I, I, all of this is just an interesting, like, 
perspective on the race and but you know you didn't really answer the question Isaac. You got any, <laughs> oh like, would he have won <laughs> i'm sorry um, so the, the answer is i i like hypotheticals are hard but i, I think uh given that he, the trouble that he had uh starting out and that the moment that he ended up meeting wasn't there and that he operationally was not ready to run in 2015 at all and hillary clinton was uh and and bernie sanders was uh, at least more so than Biden was, uh, I think he would have uh, probably had trouble. He might have done well. Theoretically, there could have been uh, the same kind of rally into South Carolina that he had uh, this time sure. around. But uh, there's a there's a conversation that David Pluff, Obama's uh, top political advisor, has right. with Biden in 2015. Obama, you know, throughout the book, I trace a bunch of these moments where Obama... Uh, is like trying to use his, I refer to it at one point as his like Jedi mind powers on people, thinking that he can get them to think the way that he wants them to. He tries it on uh, on Donald Trump. He tries it on uh, Joe Biden. He tries it on Pete Buttigieg, on Elizabeth Warren, on Bernie Sanders, at different points, different ways. Um, sometimes it works better than others. Uh, but um, he, in 2015, is trying to essentially discourage Biden from running, although he never says it in that explicit way. Uh, he's trying to get Biden to steer himself toward the off-ramp, but it's not working. And so Biden says, okay, I'm going to send Pluff in to talk to you. Talk to Pluff. Uh, and David Pluff goes to meet with him and says to him, uh, lays out the case, all the reasons why this would be so hard to do, right? And Biden is still not connecting with that. And Pluff finally says to him, listen, Mr. Vice President, you have had a great career. We love you. You've been such an asset to this administration. Do you really want it to end in a hotel room in Des Moines coming in third <laughs> to Bernie Sanders? <laughs> and that catches Biden in that moment. He's like, okay, oh. I, no, I don't. Uh, <laughs> of course, he, I mean, of course he finished fourth here, right? Like and, Exactly. <laughs> and, and I mean, so I, I think he, you know, um, it ended up uh, a different cycle, different time, as you said, uh, the prep work and all that, the laying the groundwork to, to run and, and a different field too. It wasn't just, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but, um, <clears throat> but this time, this time it did, it did end up working out. Well, we have taken up, uh, um, plenty of your time today. I just thank you again for, for joining us. Uh, appreciate the book. Appreciate you, you coming on and, and talking with us about it. Um, uh, Battle for the Soul Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump, uh, uh, written by Edward Isaac Dover. Uh, Isaac, thanks for, for being here. And uh, yeah, you can get it anywhere anywhere books are sold, I guess. Right? Well, Matt, I, look, I appreciate uh, you having me, and, and I'm glad to hear you enjoy the book. It's always for people who uh, live and breathe politics all the time uh, when, when they have looked at this book and seen that uh, there's interesting stuff to them. It's, it's great to hear. And uh, I'm, I hope everybody enjoys it as much as you did. And, uh, and yeah, pick up your copy today. Okay. Thanks, Isaac. Thank you. Next up, we have our shout outs where we lift up great work happening all over the state. If you have any recommendations, please send them to at Pathos Iowa or at Public FM. We really just wanted to shout out everyone who stood up for Iowans during the legislative session. Now that it's over, it's definitely a relief. Uh, but we just want to really thank everyone for putting in all of the hard work because I know that it was a tough session. Sure. Absolutely. And, and we are here to help in any way we can to help advocate for, for the 
values that we all believe in, um, but, but just really, really, really appreciate what everyone did this year in, in, some, in some very daunting circumstances. What a Week is produced by Progress Iowa as part of the Public Media Network and would not be possible without grassroots supporters like you. We are mixed and edited by Greg Hallenstein. For more information, visit pileup.fm, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. See you next week on What a Week.